Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. So this is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share the views uh, on policy-related discussions and our world today. I'm Tiger Gao, Princeton undergrad, sophomore, and the director of outreach at Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. At the beginning of 2019 is quite eventful. Brexit negotiations still going on. We don't know if Theresa May's government will pass a deal. Um, and, and the U.S. stock market, market has, has stabilized recently, but uh, the huge drop in volatility at the end of 2018 sort of made everybody wonder if a recession is coming. So I guess the, the reason why we invite so many economists on our show, uh, because we feel like economists are often the one they're expected to, to explain what's going on in the world. And our guest today actually has so much experience working as an economist across both uh, international organizations and in the private sector. And he'll hopefully provide us some uh, wonderful answers for questions uh, on the markets and the economy today. So it's a great pleasure for me to introduce our guest today, Dr. Torsten Slock. Uh, Dr. Slock is the Chief International Economist and Managing Director at Deutsche Bank. His economics team has been top-ranked by institutional investors uh, in fixed income and equities for the past five years. Uh, prior to joining uh, Deutsche Bank, Dr. Slocht worked at the OECD uh, and the IMF. Um, such a great pleasure to... Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, so, Dr. Slocht, I, I know we don't have um, too much time, so I want to jump to the, to the economic outlook first. So, the talk of recession has been going on for for over a year now and, and many financial institutions believe that you know a recession is imminent in, in 2019 or at least in 2020. So, so why is there so much variation and polarity in the market outlook? Why do people have so much angst even though we just passed the tax cut, even though the market seems to be doing really well and the, and the unemployment is low? Why, why is there so? Yeah, this is a really important question. I think the backdrop is that when we had the financial crisis, there were many people who missed the financial crisis and didn't see it coming. So I think we've had a huge psychological change in financial markets and among investors globally that I have to make absolutely sure that I am totally on top of any new slowdown that's coming along. So essentially, since uh, the financial crisis and since the recession ended in 2009, almost all my client meetings, we've had constant discussions about, oh, are you sure things are so well? Is there not another recession? Are things not slowing down? And I think that a lot of the first answer to your question is that where a lot of people simply are so psychologically scarred by the recession. There's a lot of academic literature about depression babies that looks at if you grew up during a time when there was a recession, then you have been basically impacted quite significantly. So I think the first observation is the psychology of markets is that you've got to be on watch and very, very carefully looking out for any downside risks. The second thing is that the expansion is now getting relatively old. Uh, just because the expansion is approaching 10 years doesn't mean that necessarily it dies of old age. But that means that we are watching much more carefully in terms of where in the economy are there signs of the expansion basically getting tired, running a little bit out of steam. And that basically becomes a more structural debate about are there signs where consumers can't grow as much their purchases for autos, for homes, where there's some indicators more recently people are getting more worried. And finally, of course, the business cycle with interest rate raising rates is magnifying some of these worries that may be the interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy are more vulnerable and getting more vulnerable. So the short answer to your question is, there are some structural reasons that we have had a psychology change. We are also late in the cycle, but there are also some other reasons that namely cyclically driven by the Fed raising rates and the Fed saying, hey, we are now having interest rates at two and a half. So maybe that's beginning to bite and begin to be more negative for the economic outlook. So I think that the combination both of people more long-term worried about the outlook 
and also more cyclically worried about high interest rates is one important reason why people are now getting more and more worried overall about a recession potentially coming. So do you think a lot of times those fear is irrational because you just mentioned the psychological factor. So how do you respond to how, what's your methodology of actually being fairly certain of saying, I don't think so, I think so. Yeah, this is very important also because I mean, I have a PhD in economics and it's all lovely what I did. And I spent a lot of time, of course, using my toolbox and it's very critical you understand economics, yeah. uh, of course, for understanding where the economy is going. But I still think at the end of the day that what absolutely the main insight in my view in financial markets is that markets are driven by stories and stories means now everyone last year walked around and said, okay, the tax cut is the main story. That's good news for earnings. That's good news for buybacks. That's good news for the stock market. Then we moved on and suddenly another story that started popping up was that people said, oh, now we're worried about other things that come in that say, for example, political changes, uh, suddenly worries about the Fed raising rates. So we move in a regime switching model from, so it's discussing something for a while, then we discuss another thing and then we discuss the third thing. And we can come back to other things again if they suddenly become important. But there are stories that go around all the time that are incredibly difficult to quantify. So you asked the very difficult question, how do I come up with our forecast? How do I come up with any changes to our economic numbers and whether things are a little bit better, a little bit worse? We try to overlay those stories and see if we can find evidence of data that shows that things are a little bit better often than what the Fed and the consensus is saying, or things are a little bit worse than what the Fed and the consensus is saying. So at the end of the day, we have a lot of small, uh, honestly, Mickey Mouse econometric models where we try to predict what will happen to home sales, to home prices, to consumption, to investment, various parts of the economy. But you only get as far as you can with those models in terms of predicting econometrically what will happen when you begin to have assumptions about what will the right-hand side variables in those econometric models do. And that ends up being a view on, for example, the most important force at the moment is trade war. Do you think trade war is very important? Will it escalate? Will it de-escalate? That's really difficult questions. So you end up saying, okay, let's look at the data for what the trade war has done up to this point. Are the trends turning around that the trade war is potentially more serious? Maybe we should be putting more weight on that. Or maybe we should be putting weight on, well, this is probably about to go away because politically this is getting less attention because other things are getting attention. So you are asking a very difficult question that, call it scientifically or academically, we do have a model like FERPUS, which is the Fed's model of the US economy that you could simulate that we try to figure out if you change anything on the right hand side, what's that to GDP, inflation, unemployment. But at the end of the day, a lot of these things end up being more views on shading of do you think things are a little bit better or a little bit worse and therefore should we have a conversation about maybe the market is a little bit too optimistic or a little bit too pessimistic and it, quite frankly again I haven't really answered your question namely how do you do this it ends up being a feeling for what are the data in those different buckets of stories telling me are they really telling me that things are really bad and could it have macro implications or are they just saying this is still something we need to watch but not something that we need to pay too much attention to now so the honest answer is you will probably be disappointed if you figure out how the Fed does their forecast, how consensus do their forecast, and how we do their forecast, because it is really much more low-tech and not particularly sophisticated, but more driven by general forces impacting consumption, investment, government spending, net exports, and trying to find out where are those forces going in the near term. So you mentioned that you would put different weights on different uh, econometric models, and you would kind of get a feel of those, those data. Do you ever go on the street just to talk to people, to you guys? Is there any other irrational or unscientific, not rigorous ways that you use to kind of get a feel of the of this society? Because I feel like most of the people, their psychology is impacted by just their daily conversation instead of 
uh, numbers on, on, on the news. See, you, know? they, they, uh, you will all and all your viewers will appreciate this. The most important thing is that there are a lot of people who don't do their homework. So another way of saying that is that if you don't follow, and we should all have done more homework understanding housing in 2006. So in some sense, if you had done your homework at the time, uh, then we would all have concluded, meaning not you, but of course everyone in the market would have concluded, wow, this is more of a worry. So now everyone is doing an enormous amount of homework. Should I look at leverage loans? Should I look at the IG market? Should I look at inflation outlook? Should I look at the slowdown in Europe? Should I look at the Chinese credit system to make sure that I monitor where these risks are? So the good news is uh, global investors are doing more homework than they have ever done before. Uh, but the answer to your question is that, well, even when you do that, let's say that I have a view that, say, uh, whatever, Europe is in worse shape than people think. If I'm the only one that has that view, you know, herding models would say, well, if I'm the only one standing over here and the market doesn't agree with that, then prices will not move according to that. But when that idea starts to spread and the herd starts to run after that idea, then, of course, prices will start to move. So the question becomes, you could be too early with a good idea. You could certainly also be too late. So a very important part of financial markets is not just having the economics right. It's really also figuring out and having this gut feeling, where is that story that I'm convincing myself now is really important? Where is that relative to where everyone else is? So that it's not only me who thinks that this is the case because then stock prices or whatever asset price will not move according to that story. But where do everyone else think that story is? So there's a lot of debate about what are the stories we're talking about and how do those stories come up? to the surface. And of course, one way of looking at this, it really is a simple way of thinking about that is, look at the front page of the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times tomorrow. What are the stories that they're talking about? And just look at the front page, nothing else, you will begin to say, these are the things we're talking about at the moment. What do I think about those things? What stories are on page seven? And what stories are not even in the newspaper today? So it's not only, it's not enough to be a good economist, is what I'm saying. You also have to have a feel for what are we talking about right now? And you also need to have a feel for what's going on inside the newspaper. So the best advice, I know this sounds really weird, go for a long walk in a green park sometimes and think hard about what is it that we're talking about at the moment. Uh, don't make this complicated. Don't overcomplicate these things. There's no need to that. It's not rocket science what I do and what happens in financial markets. Of course, if you want to price a specific product with a cap-in model, then it is really complicated and it can be and cannot be. But think about what are the stories that we're telling each other and say, do I agree with those stories? Do I think there's something else that should be missing? Where is the story going? And if the story is going this way, and then sometimes when can I catch the peak of that story and it starts to fade out and maybe pay less attention to that? I mean, China is a good example. There's been so much discussion. China is in big trouble. Now it's no longer in trouble. Same thing, the European economy. Now Trump policies, it was no problem for a while. Now it's a problem again. Now you say, okay, is it a problem going forward also? Are these stories going away? Are other things coming onto the radar screen? So I, I, I hate to disappoint you and the people who are watching that uh, it really is a lot more psychology than anything else. So that being said, I should also tell you, I'm giving a very long answer, that what's important in my job is that I need, of course, to go to investors to talk about this. So if I just sit and say, it's difficult, there's 50% chance it could go up, 50% chance it will go yeah. down, people will say, well, that has no value. Tell me what your views are, what do you think is going on? So I need to, and this is really humanities more than economics, I need to come with a structured set of arguments for why do I think something will happen to the upside? Why do you think something will happen to the downside? And weigh that together and say, I still think those arguments to the, say, upside are more important. And then people begin to say, no, no, these arguments to the downside are more important. And I need to then try to have a discussion. Why do I think those people who have arguments to the upside and why those arguments are more important than those to the downside? But it often being a more, honestly, humanities, intellectual debate about what do you think will happen? Or put very differently, 
I can't go into a meeting and just say, I think stock prices will go up. Any questions? People will say, okay, that's really interesting. Can you tell me why you think that will happen? Oh, I think the dollar will go down. And people say, well, what is the value of that? The value of that is very, very low. What the value is really is providing you with the arguments why I think something will happen. And then you will say, wow, that's really interesting. Those arguments, I hadn't thought maybe about some of it, but I hadn't thought about some of these arguments. Let me go home and think about if I want to trade on that or if I want to go home and dispute that and say, I think the other arguments are more important. So it really is more an intellectual, like an academic seminar where someone says, have you thought about this? Is something missing in your model? You're saying you assume that consumers behave in a certain way. You don't assume that there is a, a sentiment effect from uh, whatever, political changes, other things. Uh, have you taken that into account? So it's a tip to try to get the models and the frameworks to a realistic place where the set of arguments end up saying, I think whatever the Fed will raise rates at its next meeting or not. That was very long answers, but I want to go back to some part of it, which was very fascinating when you mentioned take a long walk in the park, actually think about where the stories is going. But, but I think that's, that's, isn't that the problem for us today? Because there's so many articles, facts, data, research reports thrown at us every day. The Wall Street Journal has a view, and New York Times has a view. And all of them look at different facets of facts and data, and they all deduce very, very logical conclusions. And I don't have a PhD in economics. I know a little bit of, of economics. And I look at their arguments and say, both of them make sense. What, who should I listen to now? That's it, so true. That's why it's so complicated. You have to form your own view. Because How it's easy, I mean, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, Instagram, I mean, yeah. I mean, they're working papers. Oh my God, for you guys, I don't envy you at the moment. There's just endless stream of working papers. And you say, gee, where should I take my thesis? Where should I go in which direction? And is this relevant for what I do? And you can quickly get overloaded in terms of information. So it's about, uh, which is generally also good advice, it's about, again, going for that long walk and figuring out who am I? What do I think is important? What's important for my story? What's important for what I want to say? What's important for my view? How do I limit? When you write your undergraduate reports and your thesis in different areas of what you're doing, you have to figure out what, what is it that I'm interested in and where do I put the limits? And can I defend the limits that I put on what it is that I'm doing? Because otherwise, you know too well, both in undergraduate and graduate, some students it take forever because, oh gee, I also got to include this, I also got to include this, I also got to include this, and suddenly the years go by and times just keep running without limiting what you're doing and you gotta basically get to at some point where you say this is what I think will happen so taking that to what I do today I need to figure out how do I want to because my my job is to tell you where is the US economy going where's the European economy going where's the Chinese economy going where's the global economy going I need to figure out what data do I want to look at what evidence do I want to look at to answer that question in some cases the evidence is the same across all regions in some cases, they're very idiosyncratic stories for the US, very idiosyncratic story for Europe, very idiosyncratic stories for China because these are very different economies. But I need to have a view and I need to limit myself to these other things I think are important. So the answer also to that question is how do I limit myself is that I try to constantly look, of course, at quote unquote everything as much as I can. There's a lot of people who send charts and data points to me and say, hey, you should look at this, you should think about this. Have you thought about this? But in many cases, I end up saying, well, I already have that. Or I end up saying, but I don't think that's really important at the moment. And sometimes that thing will grow more and more in the background and say, well, maybe we are going to have a trade war. So maybe that is important across all asset classes and all countries. So it really is about staying on top of everything and trying to constantly filter, constantly filter. How do I want to do this? And going for your walk in the Green Park with the whole approach of saying, 
how do I want to approach this very difficult question of answering where is the global economy going? Because there's just an endless set of indicators I could be looking at to answer that question. So even some of us might not have a PhD in economics. We're not economists. We it will all go there eventually, I'm sure. We, we, we can still <laughs> ask those questions. Absolutely. Got you. Uh, and, and I guess you mentioned that how uh, different people might have different theses and you go on to TV like CNBC to debate people and provide answers all the time. How do you usually respond to people who have a different opinion than, than So you. the first cool thing, of course, as you also know, it's no problem for me to make things complicated. I mean, I learned a lot of Greek letters, uh, and I could tell everything in Greek letters. We could take a whiteboard out here, and I will explain to you in Greek letters something, and you, you guys will probably follow. But I'm just saying, many people that you go to in the investment community would say, all these Greek letters, it's, and that's definitely not to say that is, it is extremely important of who I am, important part of who I am and my toolbox, I'm just saying I can't start a conversation with writing down Greek letters. So I need to jump and skip all that and talk to about things and talk to clients. And, and, and when I do uh, press things, I talk, to th I talk about things in much more intuitive terms. And it really boils down in very, very simple terms to demand and supply. I hate to put it this in very, very simple. I don't even talk about ISLM or real business cycle models or other things where you could say, whoa, this will also make some people confused. I just want to talk about things in very intuitive terms. So we have a tax cut. We issue a lot more treasuries. What are the consequences of more treasuries coming to the market? What is the consequences of the supply of treasuries coming to the market? That's an easy conversation because then you start thinking about, okay, if supply goes up, well, where is demand going to come from? What does it mean if supply goes up? And talking about things in demand and supply actually makes things very intuitive. In my view, it's the easiest way on CNBC and Bloomberg and wherever else I go, where you talk to even Wall Street Journal reporters and financial science reporters, because you can talk about things in ways that everyone understands. If you talk about things and, and sub-issues and topics that no one understands, you will just get lost and lose yourself into a debate that where the listener will say, I just don't really understand what, they, what it is that you're trying to tell me. So it's about keeping it as intuitive. And of course, as you all know, you have to have done a lot of homework to keep things intuitive because otherwise you are lost in all kinds of corners of why it is it that we're doing this. That totally makes sense. I want to look ahead a little bit. Um, earlier this year in... January, you issued a list of 30 market risks that could impact the financial markets in 2019. And one, one of them really attracted my attention. It says, algo-driven, risk-parity-driven fire sales in equities and credits, which basically is how investors sell off huge amount of assets really quickly because their decisions are all driven by algorithms and, and computers. And exactly. So I, I guess not just algorithmic trading, but in general, how do you see technology um, in the future affect the economy, the financial markets. Yeah, when that's we talk about important. blockchain, AI, I mean, those are big words, but... But this, you... is, this is all very important because the way that markets function has, historically, it was all, I mean, this is several decades ago, called someone on the phone, say, I'd like to buy a stock, and you would go somewhere else and say, here's a stock. But most of that stock trading now happens basically electronically. Likewise, most things in treasuries. When things get more illiquid, meaning credit, corporate bonds, you don't quite have a marketplace that's as electronic yet, but um, we're certainly across the board moving towards more and more computers taking over, both in terms of electronic trading of individual products, but also in terms of the general picture of how markets are functioning. So the answer to your question is that when we now got to, in the late last year, that stock market suddenly fell a lot, that was not driven by a fundamental change of where the economy was going or where earnings was growing. Uh, this was much more driven by the simple idea that, well, some computers are just momentum driven. 
uh, some hedge funds and some high frequency traders are basically now beginning to arbitrage away small parts of differences in pricing. Some high frequency traders are essentially driven on momentum. Some high frequency traders are basically trade to take signals from other markets to this market that I'm in here and try to trade based on that. So the problem was that momentum and momentum started falling in the stock market and across different asset classes, then all those momentum driven strategies basically started piling on themselves. So there was a situation where some of the evidence points to that there was an alcohol driven slowdown and a magnifying effect driven above and beyond what fundamentals were saying. So another way of saying that is that the difficult part of me now predicting financial markets is that financial markets are not only driven by my outlook for the economy, it is actually also suddenly driven by positioning, which broadly speaking means how many people are in trades of shorting ball, of basically algorithmic trading that are trading on momentum so that you get a little bleep in some parts of fundamentals and suddenly things start moving and then all these computers start trading on the back of that. And as you know, at the moment, depending on which statistic you look at, about 70 to 80% of all stock trading is electronic and driven by computers or high frequency traders. And the HFT, the high frequency trading community has become more and more important. So some people would have the view to answer your question that quote unquote humans, meaning the fundamental view is really somewhat secondary almost to what is going on with electronic trading. So that's of course, uh, sounds a little bit scary, but nevertheless, fundamentals, at least from my biased perspective, are still very important drivers, but it's becoming more and more relevant from a fundamental trading perspective, what actually is going on with the high frequency traders. And, and just as an extension to that question, how do you, I guess, see the financial market, world economy kind of shape up in the, I guess, very long term? Do you, do you have a thesis on that? Yeah, so ultimately, of course, the risk, uh, if you will, the, the, the benefits, if you will, is that the, everything gets very electronic. The thing that's also important about this is that at the end of the day, a lot of what's going on in financial markets is that you are, let's say you are a pension fund or insurance company, and you need to invest some money. Uh, if you only have computers and you don't have anyone to talk to about how to invest, it gets a somewhat uh, isolated uh, world you live in. So you need, in many cases, someone to debate with and discuss, do you think things are going up? Do you think things are going down? How should we do asset allocation? And these things, including some of the regulation more recently, have been constantly changing and will continue to change. So in that sense, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where investors live in completely separate worlds and only have computers and banks and the sell side more broadly have nothing to do. I still think at the end of the day that the service of discussing where are things going, understanding where things are going, how important is trade policy, how important is it what's going on in China, I need to debate that with some, is essentially will continue to be a critical part of what the uh, banking sector and the financial system is doing. Uh, I know you, uh, just to give a remark uh, on World Economic Outlook at Princeton's Griswold Center uh, for Economic Policy Studies, and since most of our listeners won't have the chance to sit into the, the, the panel discussions, would it be possible to tell us a little bit what you spoke about? Uh, Absolutely. So the short version of what we think at the moment is that we still think the U.S. economy is doing reasonably well. Uh, we're facing three different types of headwinds. We are late cycle, meaning some delinquency rates on some consumer loans have begun to go up. So there's some signs of credit deterioration. And what I mean by that is that household balance sheets are a little bit weaker than they were just two years ago. So we're a little bit worried about being late cycle. That's potentially a little bit of a headwind. The second thing we worry about is that trade war is very difficult to quantify. So one headwind to the U.S. economic outlook is also that sentiment for consumers have started to slow down. Sentiment for small businesses have started to slow down. So broadly speaking, we are a little bit worried about the general idea about, well, trade wars and sentiment around where the economy is and where the political picture is, is also more of a headwind than it has been for a while. 
And the third and final thing is that the rest of the world, unfortunately, is not doing particularly well. Germany is seeing relatively hard slowdown. Europe also seeing a relatively hard slowdown. You're seeing in China also more soft, but still a slowdown. And remember, the important statistic in that respect is that a third of earnings in the S&P 500 comes from abroad and a third of sales in the S&P 500 comes from abroad. So the rest of the world is actually pretty important, in particular for the stock market, and therefore potentially also important ultimately for GDP. So the answer to your question is that we still think the economy is doing well. We see growth gradually coming down over the next several quarters, but we're seeing some headwinds that we're a bit worried about and we have a hard time quantifying, apropos what we spoke about earlier. We have a little bit hard time quantifying the fact that some of the credit metrics have started to deteriorate. We have a hard time understanding exactly where the trade war is going and whether that's just temporary or more permanent thing you should worry about. And we also have a hard time understanding exactly where the rest of the world does as it does. Is that going to have also a significant impact on the US outlook? So from having for a long time been saying in my group in Deutsche Bank that the economic outlook was relatively good. We thought the tax cuts last year were very helpful. Now the tax cuts are less helpful. The Budget Act and some of the things on the fiscal impact is going to fade. We come to the conclusion that there are some headwinds in these three things of domestic forces, late cycle issues and global forces that are beginning to be a little bit more of a worry. That doesn't mean that we think that the Fed will cut rates or we are at the cusp of having a recession. It's just saying that some of our optimism is basically causing us more to be a little bit more cautious and saying it makes sense that the Fed for now is on hold and watching how these different forces play out. So it's optimism with, with caution. That's a conclusion. Mixed with a little bit of anxiety, maybe, dressed in the middle. In particular, because the rest of the world and with structural issues in China, structural issues in Europe, that makes us a little bit worried that uh, are we underestimating some of the downward forces on the global economy if the rest of the world is not doing particularly well? So yeah, so we are cautiously optimistic still that things will be going reasonable. So the investment implication, of course, of that are that asset market shouldn't change dramatically from here. And we still think the Fed could perhaps raise rates one or two more times later this year or into next year. But we are getting closer to the peak in the Fed funds rate and therefore ultimately also getting closer to the peak in interest rates in the long end of the yield curve. So how's the conference so far? Everything, everything going well? It's going very well. It's very interesting. It's a very good mix of yeah. academics and uh, public policy and policy making. Yeah. So it, it really is a pleasure to come here and discuss these things. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know the existence of the Griswold Center until some of the Trulich Rabinowitz Center people told me about it. And I, I know there are many different centers and institutions, but, but the, good, <laughs> the good thing is the discussion between uh, academics and policymakers and practitioners. That's what right. I mean. Right. Would you, would you consider yourself a, more of a, uh, as a practitioner? Yeah, I used to work at the IMF. Right. And I used to work at the OECD, OECD. in Paris. Uh, so I've tried to, to be on the more slow-moving side. Uh, but uh, today I try to combine and understand what is it that policymakers are saying, what is it that financial markets are saying, and of course what's the Federal Reserve saying, and try to distill that to what are the consequences. Should you be buying stocks? Should be whatever interest rates going up? Is the dollar going up or down? and try to use that as investment advice. And it's, it's not always easy, but it really is about having a structured set of arguments for why you think something will happen and why you think something will not happen. Got you. And, and I heard that in the investment bank, the, um, you have the, the, the economists, and then you have the research people, and you have the sales and trading team, kind of all on the one floor, all on the one area. Is, is, that, is that how it's yeah, that's how. So the way, exactly, the way it's organized is that you normally have three groups in the investment banking. You have research, which is what I do, you have sales, which have the daily contact with clients. Right. And you have trading, which is essentially those who give the price. Right. So trading, of course, is very important. You need to have a price of whatever, if you're selling stocks or bonds or currencies. Uh, likewise, sales is important to have the daily contact. 
But research, the idea with us and what I do is to provide ideas about what should you invest in, where should you put your money, should you put your money in uh, Brazilian government bonds, should you put your money in uh, whatever, Indonesian stocks, should you right. put your money in US treasuries, and what will the exchange rates do? So it's providing a macro framework is from the research side the main input in terms of how investors should think about managing their money. But the, but the economists are, are kind of different from the research people, right? Yeah, the, we are also part of research, thing. strictly speaking, but the gotcha. unique thing about the economics group is that we cover not only equities or fixed treasuries, income or fixed income or whatever, credit or FX. Right. We basically cover everything. So that's good in the sense that there's a lot of things to talk about. It's bad in the sense that there's also a lot of demand for people to discuss. I mean, people want to, all around the world, discuss constantly what did uh, Jay Powell say last right, week, right. Uh, what are the consequences of Trump fiscal policies. All these things become very important. And from that perspective, you're right to say economics is a little bit unusual compared to other parts of research. Because other parts of research are very specific to asset-backed securities in credit cards or whatever, auto loans, which are people who are experts in understanding that. We have that in Deutsche Bank, the other banks have the same, where they sit and become experts in everything that has to do with that, and CLOs and other things, basically in a very expert way, understanding of those different asset classes. But we try to put everything together and say, not only what's unemployment and inflation doing, which is what your Taylor rule would say, but it's also saying, okay, what are the consequences of all the things that are moving at the same time, and do we think at the end of that process that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates more. Uh, what are the consequences of the rest of the world slowing down? At the moment, China, Germany, Europe is not doing particularly well. All those things then become input to very high-flying and arm-waving arguments, right. but end up being very important for investors who think about their macroeconomic picture. That all sounds amazing. So I want to turn from um, the economic outlook and just to wrap up the interview by asking you, what advice would you give to young people today who are interested in studying economics or finance or working as an economist or financier? Because I guess the, the subject matter of economics must have changed a lot uh, since the time you were uh, in my shoes as an undergrad. Absolutely. I mean, and as you say, I mean, this is not just, I mean, if you as undergraduates or whatever you're studying out there watching this, if you think things are confusing, you're not alone. I mean, the Fed thinks things are confusing, meaning there's a lot of information to absorb. Uh, I mean, everyone in every institution everywhere is overloaded with information. That's not just as a student. Uh, that being said, it becomes extremely important, broadly speaking, of course, to filter that information. And I would say the general piece of advice that I would have is find out what you really enjoy doing. And I know this sounds very fluffy and arm wavy, but I think if you can figure out what you actually enjoy doing, and it doesn't matter, you can try different things. Some things you may say, oh, the, I thought this was fun, but it's actually not fun at all, and now I'm trying something else. That's fine. You could be very successful. We have, and including myself, I started out with my job after my degree in the IMF, and I thought I would be a civil servant for the rest of my life. Then an opportunity came to go to the OECD in Paris. Then an opportunity came to do what I'm doing at Deutsche Bank. I have enjoyed tremendously everything I'm doing and figure out what you're doing and what you're good at and do that really, really well. Find out the niche and carve out the way that you think you can shape a certain area, in particular from a research perspective. Find out how can I uncover things that maybe people haven't thought about from a dimension that people haven't thought about before. And I would say the most important aspect of that is you can't just take one textbook and say everything is inside this textbook. The most valuable pieces of research in my view, at least from the many years I've done this now, both in academic research and also in Wall Street research, is really if you can combine something you're seeing here with something that's over here, 
potentially completely different, but something that's elsewhere and say, hey, there's something over here that actually fits in with what I'm seeing here. Maybe I should either research something in between, or maybe I need to take that method, maybe I take to that idea to what it is that I'm really good at over here. I know this sounds all very uh, inconcrete, but the bottom line is, figure out what it is that you think you could do and try to drill down to that and saying, this is what I'm spending time on. Talk to others, don't hide in your room and sit with your fan when you're sweating saying, oh, what am I going to do? Go and talk to others, other students, professors, talk about what do you think about this idea that I have and get feedback. You need to have self-advocacy, as you know, because otherwise you can't just sit in your own room for three months and come out and open the door and say, now I know why we had a financial crisis. You need to have discussions, debates, figure out how can I find you what it is I'm doing. So another way of saying that is get feedback on what you're doing and talk with others about it and hopefully we'll have fun doing that also. That was, that was a wonderful answer, but the first half of that answer really, I, ha I feel really compelled to ask you this because you said, you know, everybody's confused, the, even the Fed is confused sometimes. So have, is there any point in your career that you go, why do we have all this financial markets and data and everything? Like, we, has it actually made our lives significantly better, made people <laughs> happier? Because like right now everybody's confused, right? And, and financial markets seems to be causing a lot of pain as well as often. So That's true. So, I yeah. mean, the, the, way, the reason why financial markets are the way they are is more like a path dependency idea that someone had a need in corporate finance for companies to issue a loan, meaning issue, issue a bond, to do IPO. Then someone came and said, well, I like to do securities lending. All the different things and the parts of the financial system, it, that, that is confusing, but that's part of the homework that over time you will get to know and it will not be, that's not, and when you understand the institutions, then it's no longer as confusing. What's most confusing and what I mean by the Fed and us forecasters and investors is that it's really about the outlook, not so much the institutions that becomes important to understand where do I think the outlook is going. So think about it, uh, should the Fed look at uh, in great, great detail, which they do, I'm sure, what's going on again, Europe, China, the global economic outlook, or should they just say, for now, we don't think that's important and raise rates. It could be that that could turn out later on to be dramatically important and people come back and say, hey, you didn't look at this enough and you were confused about what the importance was of this argument. But I mean, this is why they try to weigh everything and this is what we do and this is what investors I talk to all the time, try to weigh everything on the scale and say, these are the things that I think are important at the moment and I can't really do more. And as long as the Fed explains what they're doing, that's absolutely fine and they know, I should say the Fed, in my opinion, knows much more about what's going on in the global economy basically than anyone else because they have such an amount of information that they try to filter. And it still ends up after that long track with a decision, are we raising interest rates or are we not raising interest rates with all that input? And it's so easy to criticize them, but I think that they do an admirable job of trying to get all that information filtered and financial markets information to basically come to that conclusion whether interest rates should go up or not. But it's very difficult at the end of the day to come later on and say, you should have seen the housing crisis. You should have seen whatever the commercial real estate crisis in the 90s because it's so easy afterwards to say, hey, you missed this argument, uh, which is why a lot of people now, of course, are doing so much homework across so many different areas with the idea that there are things that I just cannot miss. That sounds wonderful. So very last question. The name of our podcast show is Policy Punchline. So I have to ask you, um, like we do for every show, what is the policy punchline here? Well, the policy punchline, at least for financial markets, is that, uh, well, first of all, the Federal Reserve is very important. And what I spend almost all my time on is trying to predict what the Federal Reserve will do. Uh, but I still think that the policy punchline is that uh, you have to watch, and this sounds a bit circular, but you have to watch what policymakers are saying, because that has just become more important than if, not ever, but in a long, long time. In other words, suddenly trade war, that's a policy decision 
So I need to have a view on, do I think trade war is important or not? The Fed, of course, is extremely important always, but you also certainly have policies in Europe, could also potentially be important, policies in China, policies in Asia. So policy punchline in my world means it's not enough to just sit with your ISLM model and say, hey, this is what interest rates will do, this is what quantities will do. You also have to have a very difficult, but very importantly, a difficult thing to do, namely a view on what do you think policies are doing, because policies are at the moment the very, 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 if not the most important driver of financial markets and where stock prices are going, where interest rates are going, and where currencies are going. Thank you so much for the wonderful conversation today. My pleasure. Slot. Really appreciate it. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. We encourage you to go on to uh, policypunchline.com for more information and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Uh, thank you guys for listening. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.